It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the BBC Country Farm Magazine podcast. The podcast where we go out on great escapes into the landscapes we all love, talk with interesting rural folk and tackle some of the big issues facing the countryside we all love. This week, I'm following up my walk on the Wandsdyke in Wiltshire, which you may have heard in last episode, by discussing the hazy world of King Arthur's Britain and where you can find it in the modern countryside. And I'm chatting with military historian Jim Storr. Jim has some interesting theories about why the English landscape is crisscrossed with mysterious linear earthworks. He reveals the location of mythical Camelot, and helps us find the stories hidden away in the countryside. So here I am talking to Jim Storr, who I came across reading his book, King Arthur's Wars, um, which is perhaps not so much about King Arthur, but more about um, the British countryside and sort of historical earthworks and how they sort of shape the countryside. Um, so Jim, how did you get into uh, exploring the countryside and its earthworks? An extraordinary thing to get into. What's your background? I was uh, uh, an infantry officer in the regular army for 25 years. And before that, I trained as a civil engineer. And to cut a long story short, I noticed that on various maps, Ordnance Survey maps of Britain, that there were long linear earthworks all over the place. And there didn't seem to be any explanation about why they were there or who put them there. And that really provoked my interest. How, how did you get into writing about history? Well, when I left the army, I, I set up a portfolio career, which is um, some consultancy, some writing, some research, some postgraduate teaching, and they all tend to blur into each other. And because I'm effectively self-employed, I had the time and the opportunity to be able to go around and look at some of these things. And in simple terms, the more that I saw, the more I was interested, and also, also the more I realised that there was a huge gap in the history. So I just followed it, followed it along, really. 
I find that period of history fascinating. This is the Dark Age period we're talking about, really, isn't it? From the end of the Romans to sort of three or four centuries after that. Is, is, that, is that accurate? Is that the sort of period that, that we're focusing on here? Well, that's a period, but uh, historians hate the term uh, for all sorts of reasons. And I think some of it tells you something about what you might call professional or academic historians. But yeah, it's, it is the period between the end of uh, Roman rule, which is something like arguably the, the year 410 AD, to about the time when the Anglo-Saxons started writing things down in ways that we can now understand. And the, the great one there is Bede's history of the, of the English-speaking people, effectively, which is about 730. So yes, that's very much the period we're talking about. Yes, it's quite a big gap, isn't it? I, I, it's a fascinating period because you have uh, that period where everything is chronicled and written about, or certainly there's lots of evidence, i.e. Roman times, and then there is this strange, um, strange. it is darkness, really, for, for the historical record. And what I found fascinating reading your book is that you've shone some light into that period. Uh, and it's through these earthworks, dikes and ditches across the landscape. I wonder if you could sort of explain a bit about what you found and, and how you went about disco- making these discoveries. Well, the first thing to say is they're not particularly exciting, and when you look <laughs> <Yeah>. at <laughs> when you look at them, you, your first impression might be, "Well, so what?" But perhaps we can come back to that later. Yeah, I, I, I disagree, but yes, let's uh, let's go back to it. Yeah, if you if you look on a map, ju- just as an example, the Ordnance Survey map of the area around Cambridge, there are these long straight lines, and they say earthwork, and they might have a name in old-fashioned old English script, something like Grimm's Dyke or something like that. And these things stretch for miles. Um, the, the longest one in that area, I think is about five or six miles long. And then you realize that there's just not one of them, but there's another one in parallel. And there's another one in parallel with that. And when you look on a slightly different map, you find another one after that. And you go, who on earth built those things? Because if nothing else, they are obviously man-made. So you start doing a bit of um, exploring in terms of um, sort of going online. And you find that there's sort of a hodgepodge of half-baked, can't entirely be true explanations. And you think, well, there must be more to it than that, really. I think that's really interesting that you're challenging, or not so much challenging, you're adding flesh to some of these things, but also it, it is slightly challenging some of the, the uh, traditional or conventional wisdom about some of these earthworks. Um, so how did they work? I mean, let's talk about some of that. And, and we'll come back to that question about exciting or not. Um, they're exciting on maps. And I think when you see the Gothic script and the, those lines, they, they do make you curious. How, how did these ditches work in terms of, you know, what did they mean? Well, the first thing to say is that nobody really knows. And what my book is basically about, the last chapter is called Conjecture. It's not a guess. It's we look at the evidence and the evidence seems to point towards the fact that they were built for defensive purposes. Now, if that's the case, bearing in mind that many of them are enormously long and physically quite big in profile, then the people who built them had considerable organization behind that. In other words, actually digging these things was quite technically challenging. So, my assumption, and it's more than just an assumption, is that basically they're, they're designed to defend something, usually an area, against somebody. And the questions you then get into is, well, what thing was being defended and who, which people were they defending against? 
and what sort of conclusions did you did you come to? Well, the early pointers are that the the big ones you've mentioned, the Wands Dyke, I mentioned the, the Cambridge Dykes, is that they were built either by the people that we now call the Anglo-Saxons or to defend against the people who we now call the Anglo-Saxons. And there's considerable controversy in the literature about that. But in simple round terms, the biggest ones that we know of have all been, all appear to have been built either by or against the Anglo-Saxons. And so there's a reasonable assumption that many, most, possibly all of them, were actually built in that period for those purposes. And so how do these ditches work? I mean, I walked, so I walked along the Wandstike a week ago, actually inspired by reading your book. And I knew, I knew of the Wandstike, and I, it's part of the countryside. I love those rolling chalk hills of, of Wessex, Wiltshire. Um, I did find it extremely impressive in parts. And I was wondering how it worked as a defence. And obviously there's a bank and then there's a ditch. How, do, how did it work in practice, do you think? Well, I'll do a, a fairly simple experiment. I've, I've done this with live audience and, and we always get a laugh uh, and I'll try doing it with you um, uh, over the microphone. Um, imagine that someone has cut a ditch. It's, it's, it's V-shaped and it's about three foot deep and it's about six foot wide. And they've made a bank of all the earth that they've dug up. And that's on one side. Can you imagine that? Yeah, yeah. I can, okay. I, from what I've seen of the Wandstike as well, it's, it's, it's like that. The, the, the spoil has been piled up. Yeah. Now, many of these things, and particularly the Wandstike, are much bigger. But just, just imagine that for a moment. Now, uh, imagine that you, you're, you're back at school and you've got your PT kit on and someone asks you to stand 20 yards back and take a run and a running jump at it. And you can you actually cross, with, with a running jump, a, a ditch, uh, six feet across, if you were, say, 16, 17 years old. Uh, yes, I suspect so. With a running right. jump, six, six feet, yeah. Yeah, OK, that, right. that's reasonable. Now, the problem is, of course, it's not just a running jump because there's a bank on the far side and it's probably sort of sloping at about 45 degrees. So are you likely to land on your feet? It's very unlikely. I mean, seeing the, the pitch of the slope, is it's very steep. You're, you know, you're going you're gonna to stro- you're gonna have to put your, foot, your hand out or something. to. Yeah, to yeah, stay. something like that. Okay, now pretend that you're not a 16 or 17 year old um, school student, but that you're a warrior and that you're trying to get across this thing. Now, first thing is just imagine that no matter what else you're wearing or carrying or whatever, you've got a a spear seven feet long in one hand and you've got a shield, which is about three feet in diameter, weighs about 14, 15 pounds on the other hand. Now, I'm going to ask you to do exactly the same thing, which is take a running jump and try and clear the ditch, do you think that you will land on the bank, upright, on both feet? Well, yeah, I'd probably impale myself on the spear. But yeah, I, I, I totally get the point. You would you'd stumble. It, it, you, it, it would put you in a quite, disadvantage, yeah. It, it would be quite difficult, wouldn't yeah. it? Now, yeah. just imagine that your enemy is standing near the top of the bank, and he's got a seven-foot spear, and he's waiting for you. And when you land rather awkwardly on the bank, he just stabs you. Now, is this a good idea? <laughs> Yeah, I, it has. A, it looks ideal defensive thing, but I guess my question would be, how do you maintain the vigilance if it's twelve miles long and there's only, I don't know what size a warband would be, but it's low hundreds. Yeah, you've got the right idea. The, the, the first point to make before we go there is that basically, even quite a modest ditch and a bank 
which can be dug pretty quickly, does make a, a very useful reinforcement to any kind of defense. I see. Yeah, I, 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 I get I, that I completely. That, yeah. Yeah, I, I think most people get that. So the sort of questions are, um, how do we make sure that we've got a line of defenders along the line of the bank before the other guy comes towards you, the other the enemy warband or whatever we're going to call it? And to be honest, the, the, the dikes don't, of themselves, they don't tell you anything about that at all. What that relies upon is that you might have scouts out, that you might uh, know somebody in the nearby village that will run over and tell you or get on a horse or a pony and tell you or, or something like that. Um, to use more modern terms, we call it very, very simple um, surveillance and reconnaissance, but nothing particularly clever. The real point is, assuming that some of that is in place, it's better to have a ditch and a bank to defend behind than not to have one. It, I think it really comes to something as simple as that. So, I mean, what is impressive is just how many of these dikes and ditches there are and how, and you said it would be quite, you could dig one quite rapidly. How rapidly could you dig, say, 100 yards of a, of a ditch like that, do you think? Well, there's, there's some... their tools. That yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, assuming that these are uh, post-Roman, we can assume iron, iron tools... Um, in other words, the sort of digging tools in round terms that we would have today, something like them, spades and sort of picks or mattocks or something like that. Now, there's, there's some interesting uh, figures that come actually from the First World War, and we can estimate fairly easily um, how quickly a man can dig a hole of a certain size. And in simple terms, if you ask 100 men to dig 100 yards of that kind of dike, i.e. about three foot deep, they can do it in two or three hours. So you then get into the business of multiplying up, well, how many men have you got? How long is the total ditch? And is it just three foot deep or is it bigger than that? It's, um, and you get into some fairly simple numbers and you can you know, come up with some interesting conclusions. I think that's, I'm getting in my mind these visions then of, of the post-Roman countryside in Britain with, with, with men digging, maybe women digging, all the time <laughs> to, to well, throw, up, throw up these um, throw up these fortifications because in your book you talk about hundreds of these these defense defensive lines and that's that's kind of amazing. Well, yes, that's true. There, I think there are well there are certainly hundreds. I think most of those hundreds come from this period. But the other thing to remember is that they were dug uh, as you and I were speaking earlier, probably during a period which was several hundred years long. So there's not necessarily very much digging going on in a given area at a given time. And I would guess that most of them could be dug, should we say, by some hundreds of men in a, in a month or two. Now, if we just pause there and go back, what we know of Anglo-Saxon society is that the adult males had, let's call it military obligations, we could almost call it conscription, national service, something like that. But some of them included what we can interpret as the duty to dig fortifications. So we can assume, for example, if they're not away campaigning in a given year, their king or their lead or whoever could order and direct them to dig something like this to protect themselves for future years, possibly even future generations against a given threat. Um, that's You mentioned Anglo-Saxons digging. Um, I suppose I got the impression from your book that a lot of it, was, a lot of these were dug by the Roman, Roman Britons who were perhaps defending themselves against the advance of Anglo-Saxons. Is that would that be 
correct? Or yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, I think both sides dug them, depending on who was fighting who at the time and who was trying to try and protect what. For example, the most famous of these is Offa's Dyke, which runs in round terms from the D near Chester down to the Severn. Uh, so it's, by, I think, something like 80 or 90 miles long. And it is reasonably well known that a Mercian king by the name of Offa ordered this to be dug um, to keep, basically to keep the Welsh out. Now, the Welsh are the last remaining, let's call them post-Roman Britons. So that suggests that Anglo-Saxons from the kingdom of Mercia were digging that one against the Welsh. But just to go back to something you mentioned earlier, I think, for example, the Wandsdyke was dug by Roman, post-Roman Britons against someone else, probably the people that we now call the West Saxons, i.e. the kingdom of Mercia, sorry, the kingdom of Wessex. Yeah, the, the ones like, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I, and, and you've obviously walked it as well, it, in parts you can see it running over hills for miles and it does have a little look of Hadrian's Wall about it, I think. Uh, maybe I'm over-egging the, the pudding there, but it's um, the position is on the top of the hills but also going into the vales, but protecting the Vale of Pusey, basically, so it's south of the Downs against a threat from the north. Is that is that the... Yeah, I, th- I think that, that I think that's generally it. And the, the other thing to say for the listener that's not particularly familiar with it, the Wandsdyke is actually very long. It's it's certainly about forty miles long, and depending on how you interpret it, something like seventy miles long. So in terms of length, it it rivals Hadrian's Wall or um, Offa's Dyke. Um, and to give also uh, an idea of the height of it, um, from the top of the bank to the bottom of the ditch. In at least one place, it's about 25 feet. So if you think about it, that's something like six men stood on each other's shoulders high. I mean, that would be impossible to do, but it gives you some idea. And I would agree with you, when you stand up there and you're standing on the top of the bank and you're looking for miles in one direction and in the other, and you look down to the bottom of the ditch, it's massive and it's hugely impressive. How long would it have been in use for the one stake? How long would it have actually had, or does anyone know how long it might have served its purpose for? Well, they don't. And this is where it's the sort of detective work that I did in my book comes into play. Um, there was a fairly famous, let's call him an archaeologist, uh, Pitt Rivers, who it was um, he who gave the, his collection and his money to the Pitt Rivers um, Museum in Oxford. And Pitt Rivers excavated it back in the, the 19th century. And he said, without a shadow of doubt, it's uh, late or po- post-Roman. And it was dug to defend against attackers coming from the north. Now, if you put that back onto the little framework of history that we have, I would guess that the people started to build, build it or dig it or whatever. Around the year 570 or so, there was a battle at the base place called Bed Canford, which I think is Bedford. And I think it was probably finally overrun and defeated um, in the year 652. So that's about 80 years later, because at that period, there's a battle at a place called uh, the Broad Ford, which is probably, for good reasons, Bradford-on-Avon, which is about 15 miles away from where, where I think you were standing on the Wandsdyke. So that, that suggests that it's relatively late, sorry, in the middle of the Dark Age period, as we described it earlier, and that it was, or at least sections of it, were in use for about 80 years. And that probably explains why the section that you saw was big and was probably fairly well maintained over a period. 
and that's why it's moderately well preserved. If you go further east, for example, I think that's less so. Um, it, it, it is really impressive. I would com- really urge listeners to take a walk along the Wandsdyke because it will it will surprise you what uh, uh, and and such a huge a huge historic monument in the landscape that doesn't really get written about. Um, obviously, that's in Wiltshire. Uh, Jim, you've travelled widely around Britain looking at these ditches. What other impressive ones would you, apart from Offersdyke, what other impressive ones would you bring to our attention? I think the first thing to say is if you live in England, and I know our listeners come from at least about all of Britain, but this is very much an Anglo-Saxon and therefore an English thing. If you live in England, there is probably a 90% chance that something significant is within about an hour's drive of where you live. Uh, they are that numerous and that widespread. If you're in East Anglia, the obvious ones to go to are the the three visible total four Cambridge dikes, of which um, the biggest, I think it's the Grimm's dike, does say about five, six miles long, but something like 34 feet from top to bottom. It looks like a railway embankment. In fact, I've shown pictures of it to, to people and say, oh, that's a railway embankment. Actually, it's not. Um, if you go up into the northeast, there's the Scots Dyke, um, which is near Catterick and uh, Richmond, uh, Richmond, North Yorkshire. Um, you, could, you could almost pick any part of England, with the exception probably of Cumbria and Cornwall for good reasons. And I could probably pick you out fairly quickly, a section of something which is worth going to see fairly quickly. Actually, once you imbue them with stories, a walk in the countryside, and I think it's something you mentioned in the book, that a walk in the countryside with some knowledge about what these things mean just brings the whole thing to life, a little bit of imagination. Jim, there was one last thing. Uh, I've got two last things to ask you. One is um, about, let's get back to King Arthur, because you, you did, is in the title of your book, and I'm sure a lot of people are drawn to the book because of the words King Arthur. Um, it was your explanation of where Camelot is, which really struck me. Would you be able to explain how you've identified the location of Camelot? Yeah, before I do so, I think listeners are going to be hugely disappointed. Um, <laughs> it depends where you live. <laughs> well, 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 yes, no. If you if you come from the appropriate town in, in Britain, as in fact my mother's family did, I think they might be very proud of it. But let, let, let's come back to the moment. Camelot didn't really exist in English conscious until about the the 14th century when a a French poet writing in French um, described some of the legends of King Arthur and he mentioned various places where Arthur went of which one of them comes down to as Camelot. Now to cut a very long story short when you ask why would a French court poet do that? Where does his information come from? It would seem that what he was talking about was a list of late Roman cities or towns in England. And we know what those places were. We also know that several of the names of those places have changed dramatically, but some of them haven't at all. And just as an aside, for example, the Latin name for Paris was, excuse my Latin, Lutetia Parisorum, which is a town called Lutetia, belonging to a tribe called the Parisi. And that comes down to us Paris today. For example, uh, Lincoln 
was originally Lindum Colonia, in other words, the colony at Lindum. One of the few which has changed its name considerably is Colchester. And as many of your readers probably know, Colchester was originally Camelodunum, Camelot, Camelot. And I think, regrettably, it's that simple. I think all that the, uh, the poet was saying was that a person called Arthur visited, amongst other places like York and Lincoln and Gloucester and London, he visited Colchester. Add on about another hundred years and an English historian started saying, where was Camelot? So in other words, he asked the wrong question. If he'd have just said, why did that French poet think there was a place called Camelot? He may well have come round to Colchester. Just one final little thing in the, um, the equation. Calling Colchester Camelodunum wasn't common knowledge to the English until about 200 years later. So to be fair to that 16th century English historian, he couldn't have known that Colchester was Camelodunum, Camelot, whatever. So there's almost no evidence that anyone called King Arthur existed, but there may have been, I mean, you'll be able to clarify this for me, but there may have been a late Roman Britain leader who fulfilled that sort of slightly heroic, won a, won a few battles anyway against the Saxons. Is that a sort of rough approximation of the story? Yes, I think so. If you look at history, meaning the written sources, there is one written source who, um, the writer was around, his name was Gildas, he was around perhaps 40 or 50 years after the person that we now call um, Arthur existed. We're not absolutely sure that his name was Arthur, and he appears to have been a late or po post-Roman, um, let's call him war leader. We might be able to call him a general, something like that. The other major, two other major points really, one is that the Plantagenets, who were foreign kings, they were the immediate successors to the Norman kings, deliberately picked up this legend of someone called Arthur and turned it into the whole business of um, King Arthur and the Holy Grail, and not least because they were probably familiar with the kind of material that I mentioned earlier, that French court poet. The other thing is that no matter who he was, or whatever that the Plantagenets may have done for their own domestic, dynastic political purposes, King Arthur is a very, very important point in or part of what makes the English the English because the legend exists, and therefore Britain, Britain. So to that extent, he, he exists in the mythology, whether he had a, actually had a, a real human persona or not. Uh, that's interesting. So this is, he's, he exists as a collective um, hope, really, or a collective um, figment of an imagination, but, but to give legitimacy to the Plantagenets and perhaps the English nation. Oh, yes, absolutely. There is little doubt that somehow or other a legend came down to and that the Plantagenets picked up on it. So it was around before that. Unfortunately, because it's only the written sources that we can analyse, we don't really know how people like, for example, Geoffrey of Monmouth came to that information. But clearly they did somehow. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And loads more to say on that. But I would just go back. You mentioned that he, he King Arthur, if he existed, this, this general was Romanized. 
I'm always sort of curious about how long Roman culture might have survived after the the legions disappeared from Roman Britain in what is it 450 something like that. The evidence for the Roman army leaving Britain, to my mind, um, is one of those myths. There is a, a reference to them being ordered to leave, which people in the 19th century clung to, and is now, I think, an established statement of fact. I don't think it's particularly valid. Now, that would say that the Roman army left Britain in about 409, 410 AD. If that statement isn't valid, then we don't really know when they left, part of that thought. The archaeology of several of the forts in Britain, and I'm thinking the forts along Hadrian's Wall and the forts along the east coast, the forts of the Saxon shore, were definitely inhabited well after that period And so if that's the year, let's say it's 400, give or take a few, many, sorry, some of them were inhabited after the year 500, give or take a few. And then there are other aspects of um, archaeology, like, for example, the water supply in some of the Roman towns was intact, perhaps a little bit after that. And then most intriguingly, there is some epic poetry which suggests that the last of the post-Roman armies, forces, formations, units, whatever, were defeated in battle about the year 600. So that's anything up to 200 years after we think that Roman rule started to decline. There's slightly more to it than that, because, for example, we know when the last Roman coins were imported, but that's clearly not the whole story. Bearing in mind, I'm not Welsh. Um, If anything, I'm I'm slightly Scottish. But there is one little thing that we have to say, which is there is reasonably good evidence that the the Welsh principalities that come down to us in names like uh, Gwent and Powys and so on are, let's call it successors or post-Roman identities of some sort. But the other thing is that Some of these post-Romans, at least, if not the majority, were Christian. And it is reasonable to believe that the bishopric of Llandaff, which is effectively Cardiff, is a Roman bishopric which has come down to us with an unbroken uh, history ever since Roman times. What is perhaps broken is whether that church, whether that establishment, was originally in that part of say South Wales, or was it perhaps in somewhere like Gloucester, but it migrated due to uh, pressure from the Anglo-Saxons. But I think we have to be fair to the Welsh and say, in many ways, you are more British than the Anglo-Saxons. Some really fascinating thoughts from Jim Storr there, and a huge thank you to him for bringing life and understanding to the strange lumps and bumps that we encounter on our walks in the countryside. You'll never look at a humble ditch in the same light again. And you can read loads more about the Roman Saxon countryside in Jim's book, King Arthur's Wars, published by Helion and Company. You can find lots more about rural history, wildlife and heritage at our website, countryfile.com and in the pages of Countryfile magazine, which you can find at most large supermarkets and news agents like WH Smith. This has been a podcast for BBC Countryfile magazine. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.